Welcome back to the program. Back in the 1960s, there was a very famous ad campaign that asked, what becomes a legend most? In fact, the real answer to that question is not the fur coat that was advertised at the time, but for a legend, it's really to have a good biographer. John Wayne certainly fits that role of a legend. Wayne's is a story filled with contradiction, misinformation, and of course the conflation of fact and fiction. Today, 35 years after his death, Wayne is still a bit of a mystery, even while still one of America's favorite movie stars. But what was it about Wayne, his image, his life, and his movies that interconnected so perfectly with his time and his country? Scott Iman, who previously wrote about John Ford, now turns his focus on Wayne in a new biography, John Wayne, The Life and Legend. Scott Iman has written 11 previous books. Among his books are Empire of Dreams, The Epic Life of Cecil B. DeMille, The Life and Legend of Louis B. Mayer, and The Life and Times of John Ford. It is my pleasure to welcome Scott Iman to the program to talk about John Wayne, The Life and Legend. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. One of the things that's so interesting about Wayne is the, the, the fact that personally he was so different in so many respects from the larger-than-life image that we have of him. Yeah, that's true. When I met him, you know, I met him in 1972 when I was a kid. I was 21 years old. And he was like that guy on the screen, but he wasn't like that guy on the screen. There was this interesting duality to his nature. Uh, he had the emotional size that you'd expect him to have. He had the physical size that you expected him to have. I mean, he was huge. Uh, his impact was huge. But he was personally so much quieter, almost he had a way of putting people at ease by by being smaller than John Wayne. You know, his body his his body language be, it was very, very small, very compressed, as opposed to his his body language on the screen, which is 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 very theatrical in many respects. Uh, he was quieter. He was more calm. He was calmer. He was far more reflective than his character on screen was. So it was an interesting duality. And actually, I, I suspect that if I'd never met him, I wouldn't have written the book, which is an interesting uh, psychological thing because all the other people I've written about, I never met. But the, what stimulated me to write the book was the fact that the guy I met and spent 90 minutes with, I could not find in any of the books that had been written about him. Mm-hmm. Was he the guy in their books, or was he the guy I met? And in fact, the mythology was so large and contributed to in part by Wayne, but also powerfully contributed by so many people around Wayne, including John Ford. Well, John Wayne was in the John Wayne business. Let's not, he was not an innocent bystander in, in the development of the John Wayne image. He was an active co-conspirator. Uh, he, he was a poor kid. There was no money in the family. He was a blue-collar kid. He was a jock who wanted to be an actor. And in the, in the 1920s, a blue-collar jock did not confess to things like, I want to be in the movies, I want to be an actor. So he purposely devised this this uh, uh, cover story that uh, acting was just something that someone tapped him on the shoulder and suggested he do, and he went into it, and gosh, look what happened, and isn't life strange? Uh, in fact, you know, he wanted to be an actor from the time he was you know, a teenager in Glendale. Uh, when he got to Fox as a prop guy, as a summer job from uh, his football uh, job at USC, his football scholarship at USC, uh, he started pestering people, put me in the movies, put me in the movies. 
And they said, we can't put you in the movies. You're six foot four and everybody else is five foot eight. It'll look silly. Because in the 1920s, very few people were six foot four, you know. Uh, most of the people in the movie business, most of the actors were five eight, five nine, five ten, maybe. And, you know, you just couldn't put this, this hulking six foot four guy up against people that were so small. But it was something he actively sought. It was something he worked to achieve. And, uh, but as I said, he was always in the John Wayne business and he thought it made a better story. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the idea of being an accidental movie star, as opposed to just another ambitious kid who, 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 who made his ambitions come true. What was it about being an actor that appealed to him? Why did he want to do that? I think, well, the same thing that appeals to a lot of people who want to be actors. It's a means of getting away from themselves. Like I said, he was the family name was Morrison. His 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 name at birth was Marion Robert Morrison. Then they changed his name to Marion uh, Mitchell Morrison when his younger brother was born, and his mother peremptorily decided to name the kid Robert. So they took this middle name away from uh, Marion and gave it to his younger brother, which is fairly typical of his mother, who 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 kind of treated him badly all of her life. Uh, they were poor. They were lower middle class on their best day. Uh, he really had a very, it was a, the, the parents didn't get along and they divorced, which was rare in the 1920s. Uh, he stayed with his father. His brother went with his mother and his mother never forgave him for staying with his father. It became a real uh, problem later in life because she never, as, as, as rich as he became, as famous as he became, she always would harass him. You know, what, what are you doing for Bob? Why isn't Bob producing your pictures? It was always Bob, Bob, Bob. He could never get to first base with his mother. And he had a kind of emotionally deprived childhood. He loved his father, but his father was a failure. His father couldn't put food on the table. Uh, so he gravitated towards men who could control their environment, very commanding figures like, like Howard Jones, his football coach at USC, or John Ford, uh, the great director who was his mentor and his father figure. And, uh, and his, his tormentor in many respects. Uh, but I think it was a way of becoming John Wayne was something in the same way that Cary Grant was for Archie Leach. It was, you know, they, they were playing something they weren't initially. And over time they became fairly close to that person they played because they wanted to be. One of the things that becomes clear is that Wayne was definitely smarter than the public image that he had. In many ways, John Ford contributed to that that sense of Wayne not being all that smart. Talk about that. Well, he he understood that his screen image was one thing and he was another. He had a fairly high degree of self-awareness. As he put it, you know, I, 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 I had a great job. I got to play men charting the course west while there was always someone there to bring me my orange juice in the morning, so, which is as good a description of the, of the life of a movie star as you, as you could get. So he was, he, he was aware of the disparity and the dichotomy between who he actually was and, and, and his screen character. That said, there was, a, there was an overlap between what he actually was and what he played. He, he, he firmly believed in right, or wrong, right and wrong. Uh, his political beliefs... Uh, even at the time uh, when he was an older man and since his death have often been regarded, I think, as, as an embarrassment, but compared to the, the power and the subtlety of his acting, I believe his political be- beliefs were uh, a foundation 
of of the of the power and the and the strength of his acting. I don't think there were there was something apart. I think they were part of what you saw on the screen. That firm sense of right and wrong, the sense of what's permissible and what's not permissible. Uh that sense of loneliness that he often uh projected on screen in movies like The Searchers or Red River or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh where he's a man alone, uh swimming against the tide. Uh, I think that was all, in in a sense, related to his uh, his uh, his strong conservative beliefs at a time when to be conservative was was kind of an outlying position, because he was it was a it was a time when the New Deal was uh, uh, extremely popular and more or less the dominant political philosophy. So he his personality was extraordinarily complicated. He. Uh, was more sophisticated than he let on. His he read everything. He was extremely well read. He had to be well read if he was going to hang around John Ford. John Ford was another guy who wanted to play the part of a roughneck. But you know, John Ford and Wayne would go off on a cruise on Ford's yacht, and each of them would bring along a, a, a linen sack full of books, and they'd spend you know a week and or two weeks reading. And there'd be some drinking going on too. I'm not saying that all they did was talk <laughs> about Schopenhauer. Or uh, or Douglas Southall Freeman's biography of Robert E. Lee, but, but but there was an awful lot of reading going on. And if you look at the contents of Wayne's library, it demonstrates that. I mean, he had Lolita in his library, he had uh, all the Tolkien books in his library. Uh, he read uh, vociferously in all sorts of genres. Uh, his favorite author was Winston Churchill, uh, and his hero Winston Churchill was his hero. After Winston Churchill, John Ford was his hero. <laughs> but but uh, he, he so he, he, again he admired dominant men who could control their environment, which certainly Churchill did, and certainly Ford did, and to a great extent he 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 wanted to be that guy too. And even though Churchill was a hero, one of the criticisms of Wayne over the years, particularly as it relates to his politics, was his failure to enlist in the Second World War. It's a it's a uh, it's a long story. I think I, I I think my book is the first one to get it accurate. Uh, he uh, Pearl Harbor's in December of 1941. He spends 1942 making movies, uh, occasionally writing John Ford that he wants to get into it. He wants to get into it. Ford had his own unit attached to the Navy uh, and attached to Wild Bill Donovan, who was running the OSS. Uh, it was called the Field Photo Service, and it was uh, a reconnaissance service uh, that Ford ran, and, and, and Wayne wanted to go in. Uh, Wayne, in 1943, Wayne goes to Washington and interviews with Wild Bill Donovan for a job at the OSS. Uh, and I, I found an oral history with one of Donovan's secretaries about John Wayne in the office and how thunderstruck she was to see John Wayne in Washington, D.C., off a horse. Um, and Donovan turned him down. <laughs> because he, Donovan didn't. Donovan had this instinct for guys who could function effectively within uh, this very loose framework that he'd set up at the OSS, and he didn't see that Wayne had a particular uh, 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 strengths that would lead to successful work in undercover work for the OSS. Uh, now, at that point, of course, Wayne could have downshifted and enlisted in any uh, any of the other branches of the service. He did not. I suspect the reason he did, and I don't know this for a fact because he never committed his thoughts on this matter to paper uh, or to an interview, an interviewer. I suspect the reason he did not was because he had built up this romantic idea of working with John Ford as Ford's right-hand man in uh, the field photo service. 
And when Donovan turned him down, he couldn't quite bring himself to to work with anybody except John Ford, who was, as I said, his hero next to Churchill and his father figure. Talk about his views on race, which are kind of confusing. It's never been really clear where Wayne was on that. Well, he, he, he was an Edwardian kid. He was born in 1907. So he had all the Edwardian uh, 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 in, in, in traits about, about race. On the other hand, uh, he was also an athlete uh, and an extremely good athlete. Uh, he was All-State uh, California and Glendale High football team. He was a lineman. And he would talk about how, as one of the things athlete, athletics teaches you is that race and religion are irrelevant. If the guy across the line from you knocks you on your butt, you have to respect him, even if he's black, even if he's Jewish, even if he's from Tobago. It doesn't matter. You respect the guy because of what he can do, not who he is as a, a, a racially. So he had uh, uh, some prejudices, I think would be fair to say, the famous Playboy interview that he gave mm -hmm. in 70 or 71 uh, had some uh, I, uh, rhetoric that you'd have to classify as imperialist uh, by modern standards, certainly. Uh, on the other hand, he, he was a very egalitarian. He was a small D-Democrat, if not a large D-Democrat, to give him his due. He, 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 he uh, appreciated people for who they are. And uh, he was the sort of guy. He was a he was a one-on-one uh, -on -one guy. If you would, you know, you stick a microphone in his face and he would bloviate about this thing or that thing or the Teamsters or or uh, the New Deal and all that. But if he met people one-on-one, -on -one, he would take them absolutely for for, for uh, as individuals and, and for who and what they were. And all the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, compartmentalization vanished. So, you know, that was that was pretty much who he was. Talk a little bit about the impact that John Ford had on Wayne's career. I mean, certainly he became almost an overnight success after stagecoach. Talk a little bit about the impact that Ford had beyond Wayne idolizing him, just the, the influence of, of those movies that he did for Ford. Well, he did 15 or 16 films for Ford. He did four or five films for Howard Hawks. He did four or five films for Henry Hathaway, four or five films for William Wellman. So those are uh, four world-class directors. Uh, you're talking close to 30 movies for those guys. Uh, that's a huge lump of quality work. Most of the four pictures he did for Ford are first-rate. Ford Apache, Stagecoach, The Long Voyage Home, uh, She Wore Yellow Ribbon, uh, Real Grand, The Quiet Man, The Searchers, uh, The Man Who Shot in Liberty Valance. The, uh, the Hawks pictures, Red River, Real Bravo, Hathaway, True Grit, The Shepherd of the Hills. Uh, if you take those pictures out of his filmography, it's a different career. If he hadn't, if, if Ford had not chosen him as the guy that Ford would utilize to to depict uh, the, the the face of America during the Trek West, if he'd chosen Gary Cooper, for instance, uh, or Joel McRae. I don't know that John Wayne would have that standing. I don't know that I would have written this book. That said, there's a reason that John Ford chose Wayne to embody those qualities and not Gary Cooper and not Joel McRae. As he put it, uh, Wayne has an unusual quality of being able to communicate determination, subtlety, uh, and, and uh, uh, command without using a lot of words. 
And he said, now that sounds easy. It's not easy. Very few people can do it. I mean, I guess the the one exception might be Red River, which really drove a, a big part of, of the second part of Wayne's career, which was, as you say, Haw, Howard Hawks. Oh, yeah. Red River, uh, I think I write in the book that Red River gave him the missing arrow in his acting quiver. Uh, up until Red River, uh, his major pictures had been with John Ford or Hathaway, and they both used him as a kind of uh, decent boy next door, a kind of amiable uh, country bro- country boy with a strong sense of right and wrong. That encompasses Stagecoach or The Long Voyage Home, Shepherd of the Hills, uh, even They Were Expendable, a beautiful World War II picture that he did for Ford, uh, where he plays the sec- a second-in-command who's chafing under the fact that he's the second-in-command as opposed to the leader. Um, what Hawks did in Red River is give Wayne the freedom to play someone angry, enraged, a real SOB, as a matter of fact. Uh, and Wayne had, ha- had a sense of, of disgruntlement, had a sense of stifled frustration because of his upbringing, because of the lack of respect that he earned uh, as an actor in the first 10 years of his career, where he was sloughed off and, and not given any respect. And in fact, even after Stagecoach, where he was regarded as a star, uh, and after Stagecoach, through World War II, he was always regarded as a star, but he got very little respect as an actor. And I think all that ate at him, because I think he wanted to be respected. Uh, and with Red River, he brought all, that, all those frustra- feelings of frustration and anger that he'd stifled, because he was a very good actor, and he could communicate all sorts of things. Uh, but he brought, he, he, Hawks allowed him to bring out those, those strong emotions that Ford hadn't been interested in. And he, and he, and he blazes across uh, the screen in Red River, and it's a, re- a really remarkable performance. And after that, he could, he could, he could uh, 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 jostle between his two, hit the two poles of his acting persona. The rage, which he accesses in, in uh, 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 The Searchers, or a more uh, uh, bucolic characters like the Quiet Man, and sometimes he, and he could mix and match them as he does in uh, Liberty Valance, where on the one hand he's a man very much at ease with himself and at ease with his people and at ease in the town, but as the town uh, turns and as he realizes what he's going to have to do in order to uh, kill Liberty Valance, uh, he becomes angry and enraged and he incinerates his entire life. Uh, willingly, knowingly, even uh, out of suppressed rage. So uh, Hawks is a crucial figure in Wayne's evolution as an actor. Ford is the crucial figure in Wayne's evolution as a star. Given how self-aware that he was, how did how did the Alamo happen? The Alamo was his passion project. Uh, he started uh, working on it in 1948. Uh, it finally started shooting at the end of 1959 and came out the end of 1960. So it was a 12-year 12 12, 12 uh, road to get the film made. Uh, now, of course, any number of people would have been happy to finance a, version, a movie version of The Alamo with John Wayne in it. The problem was that John Wayne wanted to direct it as well, and he never directed a picture before. For credit, he directed one or two pictures uncredited. Uh, and it, and a number of people told him, this is not the picture you want to break in on. It's expensive. It's very uh, difficult to do these kinds of movies. Why don't you get Jack Ford to do it? Why don't you get Bill Wellman to do it? Get Hawk, get anybody to do it. Any of the guys that work with and respect you, they'll be happy to do it. But Wayne wanted to make his movie his way. 
So it was a non-negotiable point that he was going to produce and direct the picture. Uh, he didn't even want to be in it, but eventually the financier said, you have to be in this for box office insurance. So he played Davy Crockett, even though he only wanted to play Sam Houston, who has two scenes. Um, so he ra- he raised the money piecemeal. Uh, he put in most of his own assets into the picture uh, because he was so desperate to make the picture. Uh, a number of people saw him coming and adjusted their uh, appetites accordingly. And the picture grossed. It didn't make enough money. Everybody ma- actually everybody made money off the picture except John Wayne. He was in final position to get any profits, but there weren't enough profits to pay him off. There were enough profits to pay off United Artists and Clint Murchison, a Texas oil man who put in some money, and other investors. But there wasn't enough to pay off John Wayne, so he took the financial hit. Uh, but he was always proud of the picture. When I talked to him, uh, he was still proud of the picture. He said, I didn't make any money. He said, but I didn't make it to make money. I made it. I made it. He, he made it as a clarion call for a country that he thought needed to be reminded of what people had sacrificed in order to create America. It's interesting as you tell the story. I mean, part of the problem is that the movie that he thought he wanted to make 12 years before he actually made it might have played differently 12 years before. I mean, part of its failure, part of its problem was when it came out. Yeah, that was part of it, but I, I don't think it would have been radically different. It, he spent too much money. Mm-hmm. Is, is the problem is he didn't really, he wasn't really able to control his costs. He spent a lot of money on that picture. For the Alamo to have made money, it would have had to be something like one of the top 15 grossing pictures of all time, up to that point. And it's not gone with the wind. You know, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's it's got a great final half hour battle scene, uh, which, where he proved he could really direct action. Uh, but the first half of the picture is slow. It's a long build up to get to to uh, some movement, uh, and that's I think you know you could chalk it up to inexperience. You could chalk it up to a lack of objectivity. If he was just an actor. Uh, who had been handed this script and say, would you consider playing Davy Crockett? I bet John Wayne would have read the script and said, you know, the first half of this picture is pretty dull. You need something happening here. But because he was in so deep, because he was so concerned with money, with getting the set built in the middle of Brackettville, Texas, which is to say in the middle of nowhere, uh, with, with all these other details, he might very well have simply not given the attention to the script that the script needed. Talk a little bit about Wayne's personal life. He had three marriages, and, and as you talk about, his choices of, of women were always uh, sort of consistent in some ways and not always in his best interests. Well, they were all Latinas. He married all of his wives were, were Latin. They were all very attractive. Uh, in a sense, I think he was marrying arm candy. Uh, Dobie, Harry Carey Jr. told me that he thought the problem was that he never really married anybody with brains. <laughs> <laughs> which is a little unfair to his first wife. His first wife was, was actually had more college than he did uh, and was a smart woman. Uh, but I kind of know what Dobie meant. Uh, he would go on to say, Dobie would go on to say, they weren't women that you could yak with all night. You know, they weren't, uh, they weren't good companions particularly. Uh, and, and, and a complicating factor in Wayne's, and Wayne loved family life. He was great with kids. He was great with grandchildren. Uh, he wasn't so great with wives because he was a workaholic. Uh, he real because he had been a poor kid and he wanted to be wealthy. He didn't ever want to be poor again. This was a driving factor in his life. 
he worked a lot. And when he wasn't working, he was often thinking about working or planning to work uh, or lining stuff up to work. I mean, his work was, I think, next to his children, by far the most important thing in his life, by far. And that didn't leave a lot of oxygen in the room for uh, a marriage. And all three of and it's as ironic because he did love being uh, he loved family life he loved things like Christmas he bought Christmas presents personally for all of the people in his life um, he decorated the tree himself he did all this kind of stuff he loved family life but all three of his marriages hit the rocks uh, and he was very embarrassed about that you know it was not something he uh, he wanted to talk about particularly he he felt it was. Uh, uh, it was something he was slightly ashamed of. Okay. So you you had the, you had this tension between his conflicting desires. On the one hand, he wanted a family around him. On the other hand, he tended to be away from the family, making a movie or on some business venture uh, because of his compulsion to work. Talk a little bit about the final stage, not just of his life, but his career, of his career after he was diagnosed with cancer in the mid-60s uh-huh. and the work that uh-huh. he did after that and the way he was perceived after that. Well, he, he had cancer surgery uh, at the end of 1963, and they removed most of a lung. Uh, he was a heavy smoker, three, four packs a day of uh, unfiltered camels. Um, very heavy smoker since he'd been a teenager. And at the t- and and he survived. And at the time, there really weren't that many cancer survivors, especially not uh, fr- from a serious uh, case of lung cancer. But he survived, and it gave him an aura of indomitability mm-hmm. uh, that even he was kind of conscious of. And 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 it was difficult for him. I mentioned earlier that he was in the John Wayne business, and he talked about when he was given his diagnosis that he had lung cancer, and they had to go in and take the lung out. That he, he he said something effective. I sat there trying to be John Wayne. Now that's a terribly telling quote, and it's a very heavy weight to have to carry if you have to react to the news that you have a potentially fatal disease by trying to act like John Wayne. You know, but that's the sort of thing he carried as his burden. Uh, on the other hand, he also had the wit to acknowledge that he was trying to act like John Wayne. It wasn't <laughs> something someone else pointed out to him. Uh, but the fact that he survived for uh, 15 years, uh, 16 years after that, until the cancer came back and, and took him out, uh, gave him uh, an aura of indomitability that worked uh, uh, worked to, to his advantage, I think. It worked to his advantage in terms of his movies. It worked to his advantage in terms of his stature uh, as an American icon. It really created a whole different persona in so many ways in those later movies like True Grit and, and obviously The Shootist. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, and The Shootist is such an interesting picture because he was his health was failing as he was making the picture. He was feeling terrible. He was I was on the set of the picture and he was not. You could tell I between the time I did spent with him in 1972. And the shit was made over the holidays and the beginning of 1976. Uh, he deteriorated considerably. You could hear him breathing from 10 feet away. His breathing was very bad. His voice was not good. He was, you could he sense he was laboring, you know. Uh, his, his health had deteriorated considerably in just a little over three years, um, which can happen. You know, he was pushing 70 at this point. 
but he made they, they had to shut the picture down for two weeks to shoot us because he got a case after his cancer surgery after his lung was removed anytime he got a cold uh it was 50 50 to go into bronchitis slash pneumonia and because the lungs were weak and he always had lung trouble after that and, and throat trouble after that because he didn't have a lot of breath. And he got a cold. They're shooting in locations in Carson City for the shootist, and he got a cold. And it got worse and worse. They got back to the studio, and it got worse and worse. And finally, he just couldn't breathe. And uh, uh, they had to close the picture down for two weeks. And, this, and it was kept very quiet. It did not make the trade papers. No one knew. Uh, they put the lid on it. Uh, and he was petrified because he figured... If they knew that he had to shut the picture down for two weeks because of his health, he'd never get another job. You know, he was worried about working. Uh, again, a workaholic. Uh, so he, he then they, at this point, they weren't sure he was going to be able to come back. I mean, he was really sick. But he did, they finally got rid of the, uh, the pneumonia, and he did make it back, and they finished the picture. But he never made another movie uh, because his commercial stature had was being diminished because... He worked best in westerns at that point, and westerns were a failing, commercially failing genre in the 70s. Uh, you know, they were making different kinds of movies. Cop movies were hot. He tried that with McHugh and Brannigan. It didn't particularly work. Uh, and, a lot, and, and at the same time as he was, you know, pushing 70 years old, his health was getting very, uh, he was getting frail physically. Not, didn't look frail, but in fact, he was not doing well. Uh, and and between those two things, the shooters became his last picture. Scott Iman, the book is John Wayne: The Life and Legend. It's just out from Simon and Schuster. Scott, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I had a good time. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 